Have you ever had the experience of being the only competent person, let's say, on your work team? Whether you work in an office or as as an aircraft mechanic or, or anything, you know, a yard worker. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're the only person who has maybe the right perspective. Maybe you can see all the problems. But no matter what you say and how you try to influence the course of events, well, nobody listens to you. Maybe you're surrounded by idiots, right? That's happened. Maybe everyone is only concerned with their own advancement and hey, maybe nobody else cares. But it's a universal experience, I think, which we've all probably felt at least once in our lives to be forced to, you know, ride along in the burning vehicle, so to speak, as it tumbles off the side of the cliff. Well, today we're going to talk about somebody who probably had a similar experience. A man who, in military prowess, political acumen, and strategic thinking is the equal of everyone we've talked about on this podcast so far in this season. But because of, well, you might say the choices in his life, or maybe the circumstances in Rome at the time, he's going to have that riding along in the burning vehicle sort of experience. There are going to be points in this story where the character we're discussing today could have changed the course of history if the people in charge would have just listened to him. And I think it all kind of goes back to that age-old conflict in Rome between the senators and the privileged class and pretty much everyone else. Because the focus of today's story, a man named Quintus Sertorius, and he was another new man in Rome. And because of that, his, let's say, dignitas, well, it wasn't quite as respected as the people who have the long histories, the ancestor walls, and the, you know, important muckety-muck attitude. And it goes to show you that in a, in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter how good you are sometimes. It doesn't matter how bad you are, because Sertorius was in a lot of ways a terrifying and terrifyingly competent individual. Sometimes it just matters who you know. So today we're talking about one of the baddest dudes of the late Roman Republic, Quintus Sertorius, on courage and conflict. Now, Quintus Sertorius was born in the Sabine country. And it was kind of this, uh, you know, rural area. Though his family, I believe, were equites. They would have been like knights 
You know, they weren't the classic noble patricians of Rome. They didn't come from one of the important clans who founded the city. They were sort of maybe provincial nobles, perhaps. But Sertorius's father dies when he's very young. And so he's raised by his mother, a woman named Brea. And she makes sure that her son has the best education, you know, due to a, a boy of his social standing. So he's educated in the Latin and the Greek. He learns oratory and all the important skills that uh, a Roman should, according to the, you know, status quo of the time. But also, Sertorius was kind of a country boy. Right? He, you get the sense, especially due to some of the exploits later in his life, that he probably grew up knowing how to hunt, knowing how to move through the through the woods without leaving a trace, how to navigate. You know, he was kind of an outdoorsman. You really get that sense. And and Sertorius, his story, it takes place in conjunction with a, a lot of the things that we've told already. He's prominent in the late Republican period when Marius and Sulla are at each other's throats. And then also when Sulla takes control of Rome. So in an effort not to retread too much ground, I'm going to point out some of the notable parts of Sertorius's life. And in particular, the places where his influence appears in the tales that we've already told. Maybe to illuminate a part that you hadn't heard yet. And also enough to kind of give you an idea of who the man was before we get into the I guess you could say the story proper. So, who was Sertorius? Well, one of the first things that you should know about him is because he was raised by a single mom and she, you know, made sure he was educated, etc., etc. Sertorius, he loved his mama. He was kind of a mama's boy, maybe. He treated his mother well. And that's mentioned in the, in the stories about him. He goes to Rome, apparently, or perhaps unsatisfied with the life of a, you know, a provincial official. He goes to Rome and starts his career as kind of an orator, maybe like a lawyer or something like that. And he's, he's, he's good enough at oratory to be noticed by the famous Cicero. When Cicero was a boy, and he says that of all the what he calls the illiterate um, orators, uh, Sertorius was basically the best. He apparently had kind of a, a straightforward and down to business way of speaking that the people really identified with. And he was so good, in fact, that a man like Cicero he mentions him in his own writings. 
So even though he's this, you know, gruff, outdoorsy, you know, newcomer to Rome, a novus homo, if we've, as we've already discussed, like Marius, right? Sertorius was also very intelligent. He was, uh, you know, a cunning speaker and perhaps maneuverer. And even at this early stage in his political career, you might say, he's notable enough to be to have been written about later on by Cicero. He's one of the people that Cicero noticed as a boy. Because I'm fairly, I'm fairly sure it was common in Rome for, you know, like fathers to bring their sons to the forum and everything. So the, you know, the, the next generation of Rome's important people could see how the everyday business is done, right? They probably sat by their father's sides while they, you know, met with their clients and on and on and on. Well, young Cicero, he took note of Sertorius. But Sertorius quickly finds that where he really shines is in the legions. Next time Sertorius kind of pops up is at the Battle of Arausio. And if you remember, the Battle of Arausio was where Rome faced down the Cimbri. It was one of the earlier battles of the Cimbrian Wars. And the big issue at the time was the rivalry between Capio and Malleus, right? Malleus was the consul that year, and he was a novus homo. Capio was operating under proconsulate authority. And basically, a Roman proconsul, right, it had to be a former consul or, uh, I believe, a praetor. And they operated with consulate authority, but once they entered Rome, they lost all their legal authority. Right, they were just a, a non-consul with consular authority. They basically they could lead in armies and make these consular decisions. Well, Capio had proconsular authority, and Sertorius was fighting in the Legion of Capio. And it's possible that he was one of Capio's hereditary clients. Kind of unclear, at least to me. And. Capio and Malleus, they, they just couldn't agree on anything. And in particular, Capio could not abide to be ordered around by this country bumpkin, up-jumped, you know, plebeian maybe, Malleus, this novus homo. Capio was a patrician, right? His family extended back to the founding and blah, 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 blah. Capio did anything he could to disobey and sabotage and just generally be a thorn in the side of Malleus. And at one point, it, it takes like a, a, an act of the Senate to mediate some dispute between the two of them while Sertorius is serving under Capio. 
as a young officer. And during the Battle of Horacio, right, this problem between the, the new men in Rome and the old patricians, right, which is, is almost like the central conflict in ancient Rome, just personified. Well, it comes to a head at this Battle of Horacio because, of course, uh, Amalius wants KPO and his men to cross the river and they won't do it. And, well, the Kimbri, they're not, they're not stupid barbarians, right? They see the division in the Roman forces. And at the most inopportune moment, you know, when the, when the legions are kind of divided against each other, well, that's when the Kimbri attack. And if you remember, Rome lost tens of thousands, like something like 80,000 men at the Battle of Horacio. And Sertorius, well, Sertorius was one of the few who survived. And I just tried to imagine for a moment what that's like, right? He's, he's wounded, right? He, he does get wounded in this battle. His horse is killed out from under him, right? He's carrying his shield and his gladius. And on one side, he's got the Kimbri, but in just a storm of swords and, and, and slaughter. And the other side is the Rhone River. And this river is wide. I mean, I think it's, you know, wider than, than like two football fields or something like that. It's, it, it's a long swim and it's got a strong current. All right, this ain't no baby creek. And so Sertorius, you know, faced with being cut down by the Kimbri or swimming across the river, well, he chooses the river. And there was this thing in ancient Rome about your shield. All right, it's a, it's a little bit like that Spartan thing where, you know, the, 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 the Spartan mother tells her son, you know, come back with your shield or on it. Well, there was a similar view in ancient Rome. You know, if you lost your shield in battle, well, you're, you're kind of assumed to have like thrown your weapons and run away like a coward. So Sertorius in all his armor, carrying his shield, wounded, wades into the river and swims to safety. All right, maybe he didn't have to swim too far. Maybe he, you know, got out a certain distance and, and the current carried him down. You know, maybe he played, maybe he played dead or something. Who knows? I don't see how you could play dead if you're swimming in a bunch of armor because of course, that's going to drag you right to the bottom. So, during that battle, I think it's fair to say that Sertorius won his, you know, legitimate bad motherfucker badge. Because he escapes the Battle of Horacio. He regroups with his unit. And you think an experience like that Right, the way people talk today, you know, this is going to leave him mentally scarred and he probably has bad dreams and all this shit. Well, the next thing that Sertorius does is he volunteers for this 
really dangerous mission to infiltrate the Kimbri and gather as much intelligence about them as he can. And, you know, this sounds like some shit from a video game, you know. You got to, uh, you know, knock the guard out and, and put on his clothes and walk around camp pretending to be one of the enemy soldiers. Well, it wasn't quite that easy for Sertorius, okay? Because Sertorius had to learn the language of the invaders. He had to kind of learn the customs. He had to probably grow out his beard and, and, and adopt a whole different form of dress and learn, you know, about the gods they worshipped and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there wasn't no Duolingo at the time, folks. He couldn't go, he, he couldn't even go down to the local library and, you know, uh, check out a book on the Celtic language or, or Hydromanic or whatever language these Kimbri spoke. No, he had to wade into the danger, you know, facing the tide, so to speak. And so Sertorius stays with the Kimbri, I believe, as they raid into the Iberian Peninsula, which is going to become important later. But I believe in this period, you know, he not only came to learn about the Cambri, but he probably came to respect them somewhat. Because, at least in my mind, on a mission like this where you have to embed yourself with the enemy, well, he can't have been amongst them for as long as he was. He couldn't have been amongst them for as long as he was without at least you know, coming to form some relationships with some of the people. And in the ancient writings, you know, a lot of armies and, and, and generals and things like this, they have respect for their enemies. And you can see that in the way that they write about them, for instance. Well, the things that Sertorius goes on to do in his life makes me think that during this period, he you know, not only gathered as much intel as he could and came to understand these people, but I'm sure he also gained a lot of respect for them. But he, he's able to stay hidden amongst the enemy as they raid around the Iberian Peninsula. And when they return to Italy, he makes his escape and returns to the legions. And he takes his intelligence straight to the great guys, Marius. And it's this daring intelligence-gathering mission that rocketed Sertorius to the top of Marius's inner circle, right? And what a rise for a guy like Sertorius, this, you know, outdoorsy <laughs> outsider to come to Rome and in such a short period of time, and at this time he's still kind of a young guy, to be in the inner circle of the, most, of the most powerful men in Rome at the time. And so Sertorius very likely fought in the Battle of Aqua Sextiae and in, in Versailles. And he likely marched in the triumph that Marius and Catalyst shared after the defeat of the Kimbri.
Now after this, Sertorius is in Marius's inner circle. Like I said, he's kind of considered a friend of Marius. And he's one of Marius's clientele. And this is when Marius, well, he runs into the problems that he did with the Roman system. Remember that Marius was a great military commander, but not much of a politician. So Marius had to make deals with people who were kind of popular demagogues, people who were better speakers than him, maybe more savvy political maneuverers, and people who, you know, had their own interests. And so one of these guys, a man named Saturninus, who interestingly enough, Saturninus is, well, you've heard his name already if you've been listening. But here's another little interesting fact about Saturninus. After the Battle of Arausio, when Capio returned to Rome, well, Saturninus is the guy who basically prosecutes him for, you know, whatever you want to call it, dereliction of duty. He gets blamed for the loss. And probably rightfully so. Well, Saturninus was the guy who prosecuted him and got him, you know, run out of the city. And so now he appears again. And it, it's kind of unclear. You know, at, at least Plutarch doesn't mention it. But I kind of get the feeling that Sertorius probably, you know, didn't like the fact that Marius was palling around with a guy like Saturninus. Because, well, he kind of had that brush with him before. You know, Saturninus is the guy who got KPO banned and, it's kind of unclear what Sertorius thought about Capio, but I get the real sense that Sertorius is slowly getting kind of fed up with the nobility in Rome, right? And not just the Optimates, right? Throughout this podcast, I've, I've talked about this conflict, you know, kind of in simplistic terms at times. Um, the Populares versus the Optimates, you know, the nobles versus everyone else. But things are a bit more complicated than that, really, in Rome. Uh, you know, an optimate might champion a populari cause if he thought it was going to get him some power. And a populari, in turn, might support the aristocracy if he thought it would secure his position. So, you know, politicians on both sides are, are kind of doing this power broking, power brokering. I should say. And you get the sense that Sertorius is probably getting a little bit fed up with this. That, you know, he, he's playing the game along with everyone else. But in my mind, right, I want to imagine him as being really wary of a guy like Saturninus. And not just because of where he stands in this whole conflict, but also because of things that he goes on later to do. And this is, of course, the, you know, Marius's dealings with Saturninus are what get him exiled from the city in disgrace. And so, you know, Capio has been exiled and Marius now is exiled and fallen out of favor. And Sertorius, well, he gets out of the city. 
he gets on as a, as a military tribune and he gets sent to Iberia. And he goes to the town of Castillo. And I guess this was kind of a mining town. And Sartorius is kind of a minor officer. He's in charge of like maybe a hundred men, maybe a couple hundred men. But a small number. And they were occupying this town. There was apparently a mine nearby that Rome, of course, is taking control of. And, you know, they're, they're taking the taxes right out of the ground. And remember that the pattern for Roman generals in the Iberian Peninsula was basically to show up and, and, you know, kind of antagonize the locals, incite maybe a rebellion. And then, you know, they get to call back to Rome and say, oh, we need troops to put down this rebellion. And then they get sent another legion and, you know, then they go on about, you know, having a free hand at committing more atrocities and probably, you know, profiting quite a lot personally. Well, this is kind of going on. And the, the soldiers in the town of Castillo are taking advantage of their position, right? They're getting drunk, you know, uh, just trying to keep warm. <laughs> As you say, you know, they're probably take advantage of the local women. They're being quartered in the homes of, of the local villagers. And so these villagers, they go to a neighboring town for help. They basically send out the word, hey, we need some warriors to come up here and deal with this Roman problem. Well, one night when the Romans are, you know, they're, they're getting wasted, basically. Maybe they have a big party and... They're all kind of passed out drunk. Everybody but Sertorius. And Sertorius kind of avoided drunkenness as, as one of his core values. And that's going to come into play later in the story. But it comes into play now, right? Because a bunch of these warriors from this neighboring town are, are, are let into the city by sympathizers and you know some word is given and they 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 immediately go about and they start killing the romans in their sleep well sertorius is alerted to this you know crazy goings on remember that he he's got his legit that motherfucker card already and he is able to fight his way free he rallies some of his troops and they discover that one of the, that they're able to like escape, right? And they discover that one of the gates to the town has been left undefended. And so Sertorius, you know, moving decisively as he tends to do, he leads his men into capturing this gate. Once they secure the gate, they come up with a plan and they're able to work their way back through the town maybe street by street in this hard fight and they're able to take it back. And, you know, rather than just sitting back and enjoying this victory as probably a lot of people would have done, Sertorius sees a chance to gain a little ground. And so he instructs his men to go about the dead, you know, Hey, go find a dead guy who is about your size and put on, 
his clothing. And so he and his men, they all dress up as Celtiberians. And he leads his men back to this neighboring town where these other warriors had come from. And as they're approaching, right, the townsfolk who are, you know, probably waiting on word of the Romans having been killed, right, they throw open the gates and and a welcoming party comes out to meet them. But trickety-trickety, it's Sertorius and his men, not their returning victorious warriors. And a bunch of them are killed right there outside the gates and the rest of them surrender. And just like that, Sertorius cements his name into legend in the Iberian Peninsula. And amongst the Roman legionaries, right, they give him the grass crown. And the grass crown is like this, you know, it's a strictly military honor. It's it's given by the soldiers to the commander as a show of you know, honor. It's, it's this great military laurel. And when Sertorius returns to Rome, he runs for the caestorship and he gets elected. And this is when the social war breaks out, right? And this war, it brings Marius back out of hiding, right? Marius comes back to Rome. Things are kind of starting to even out. Sertorius, he gets elected as a caestor. And his job is to go and recruit a bunch of uh, a bunch of legionaries from the countryside to fight in this social war. And he does a really good job of it. He's you know his his uh, bravery and his efficiency and all these things are, are are noted by his peers. And and very importantly, right, Sertorius will remember that he he learned a great deal of his military acumen from Marius. And so Sertorius fights in, in sort of like the what you might call the Marian style. Right? Sertorius fought like guys like uh, Alexander the Great, right? He he rode into battle with his men. He was right there in the front lines. He was digging ditches with them. And in this war, he lost his eye. And and like a lot of you know great men in history who are these keen military thinkers and, and strategists and kind of just these hard ass bastards right a lot of them have one eye like one really famous guy is philip of macedon right <laughs> nick fury i mean come on odin gave his eye for knowledge right well sartorius gave his eye in the social war and he would later go about kind of wearing this proudly and he would say that you know other men they you know they set aside the proofs uh, of their, you know, of their honors, basically. But I get to wear mine around all the time, something like that. And because of his service, right, he kind of becomes a star in Rome. He gets inducted into the Senate. And when he would enter the Senate house, right, he'd get kind of a standing ovation. Right, he was really kind of a rising star. And so... He tries to leverage this rising stardom into a, into a more grand political career, and he runs for Tribune of the Plebs. Right, that dangerous position, Tribune of the Plebs. But the thing is, is that the, at this time in Rome, that grand conflict between Marius and Sulla is just about 
to come to a boil. And Sulla, right, Sulla's married into the the Metelli. Right? He, he he's married Metella, who was the you know the ex-wife of this Emilia Scaurus, who was the leader of the Optimate faction at the time. Remember that Scaurus died. And Sulla, right, that was when Sulla came into his own, became the leader of the Optimate faction, right? He married into the most powerful Optimate family in Rome and took control of that faction. And well, Sulla is not going to allow anyone who's a friend of Marius to gain any ground in the government if he can, you know, if he can do anything about it. No friends of Marius are going to be elected. And so Sulla forms a cabal against Sertorius and he's able to block him from becoming tribune. And this event really cements their, their, <laughs> I don't even know what you call it, their enmity. Right, Sertorius, he kind of, you know, he uploads a lot of hate for Sulla at that point because it's kind of clear by now that Sertorius, he's, you know, considered to be in the Marian circle, but he's he's grown a bit disillusioned with Marius. Right, Marius, he failed to reform the government the way that he had been threatening so loudly to do during his campaigns. Right, all those times that he was elected consul and he'd promised to kind of drain the swamp, as it were. Well, he'd failed. And not only failed, but he'd been disgraced. And Marius's, you know, Marius's reputation was on the wane. And then, of course, the the whole thing comes to a boil when Marius tries to usurp the command of the Mithridaic War from Sulla. Sulla marches on Rome, takes the city, sends Marius running. And it kind of seems during this time that Sertorius is probably trying to lay low. He... He doesn't really do a lot. He, he doesn't choose a side yet. He's kind of playing things close to the chest. Because like I said, he's disillusioned with Marius. And there's some indication, maybe not this early on, but definitely later, that Sertorius is, you know, not really trying to distance himself perhaps from Marius, but doesn't completely agree with Marius is perhaps his methods. Sertorius is kind of a man of propriety. And he would have seen some of the things that Marius did as, you know, pushing things a little bit too far. But of course, Sulla, you know, Sulla was his enemy. But Sulla goes to prosecute the war. And when Sulla leaves, remember, he he has the two consuls that year, the year that he went to prosecute the war against Mithridates, Octavius and Cinna, swear to him that they wouldn't, you know, they're not going to do anything. Well, Cinna, of course, he sees that the Italian allies are still not being given their, you know, their rightful place after the social war. I mean, they'd been given the citizenship that they wanted, but they'd been gerrymandered so thoroughly that they'd never be able to change the course of events in any vote 
on any issue. They were kind of divided into this, you know, voting block that would vote last and have the least effect on anything. And so Sinna wants to redistribute these Italian allies into, into other voting blocks. And, and he knows that anybody who were to make all these Italian allies his clients, because remember, the central relationship in Rome is the client-patron relationship, right? the doing of favors. That's like a cultural touchstone in Rome. And anybody who could redistribute the Italian allies and get all, you know, have all of these new voters on their client list, well, that person could become the most powerful person in Rome. And Senna knows this. And so Senna starts trying to, he, he calls a plebiscite and he tries to get this law put in. Or not a plebiscite, I'm sorry. He tries to put this, because he's a consul. He tries to put this law through that redistributes the Italian allies throughout the, the Roman voting blocks. And a bunch of these Italian allies are in the city at the time. And so, you know, every time this issue comes up, and remember, there's just been a war fought about it. Violence breaks out. And of course, violence breaks out. And Sertorius has already declared for Senna. Because he sees Senna is maybe the more active of the two consuls that year. Octavius is kind of priestly and, you know, not a very effective leader. And so Sertorius chooses the side of Senna. And there's this big riot. Octavius marches into the forum with soldiers. There's a big fight. And Sertorius and Senna get run out of the city. And if you remember, this is where they go around and they start going to the Italian allies and they start raising more troops. And I mentioned when we talked about Marius, I mentioned Senna. And what he was doing. I didn't really mention that. Really it was Senna and Sertorius. Right. Sertorius is really. You know. Putting himself forward. And being. I don't want to say groomed. But things are shaping up. So that Senna is going to be kind of like the political guy. And Sertorius is going to be. The military guy. But then all of a sudden. Well. Gaius Marius shows up on the scene. And right from the start, Sertorius is opposed to Marius's presence. Right? He's already kind of disillusioned with Marius in the first place. And then Marius shows up, you know, old, overweight, unshaven, leading this horde of, you know, slaves and ruffians. And he's already showing signs of dementia. And so he kind of takes Senna aside when Mary shows up and he says, hey, you know, we can't ally ourselves with this guy. Look at him. He's going crazy. Remember what happened last time with Marius and, and he's vengeful, right? Marius is not looking for justice, right? He's looking for revenge. And Sertorius can see this right away. Well, Senna, he kind of hems and haws and he's like, well, you know, I, I kind of invited him. <laughs> and 
Well, Sertorius being a man of propriety as he was, and being a new man in Rome, he says, well, why are we even having this conversation? Because if you've made a promise to a guy like Gaius effing Marius, well, you have to keep it. And so against his own better judgment and against his advice, Marius is brought into the inner circle of this growing rebellion, so to speak. And of course they, they march on the city, they take it back. And of course, Mary starts killing all his enemies, all of his personal enemies, right? We, we've covered this ground before. His, you know, his slave army, if you want to call it that, he had this army of freed slaves, remember, that was spreading throughout the city and killing all of Marius's enemies. And they were defiling the city, right? They were killing the men and then they would rape the wives and, and defile the children and they were doing all kinds of things, looting the homes of these great Romans and, you know, committing offenses that pretty much everybody in Rome found to be disgusting. But Marius refused to call them down or do anything to rein them in. And though Sertorius had come to Senna and, and said, hey, Senna, will you talk to him? You know, basically talk to Marius, get him to do something to rein these people in. And he would also excoriate Senna for the things that Senna was doing because Senna was also killing his enemies. And out of the three of them, Sertorius was the only one who didn't participate in this, you know, just glorified murder, basically. He refused to have his enemies killed when he basically had his boot on their throats. And finally, when, you know, either right before or right after Marius dies, because when he hears that Sulla's returning, you know, of course, Marius kicks the bucket. And as soon as Marius dies, Sertorius raises a bunch of soldiers. He marches down to the camp of the, this, this, you know, uh, army of slaves, about 4,000 men surrounds their camp and puts them all to the sword to end this, you know, absolute chaos that was happening in the streets of Rome. And then that period sets in where Senna's kind of in control and Sertorius acts as kind of a sobering influence on him. He, you know, speaks against some of his, some of the excesses that he that he takes, but his relationship with the Senate is kind of starting to fracture a little bit because there's a lot of people in the Senate who want to keep the peace. Of course, there's this whole peace coalition that forms at this time and they're trying to negotiate with Sulla. And Sertorius basically is calling them all fools. And he's telling them that if you think Sulla is going to come back here and do anything but take revenge on everybody who has wronged him, well, you're an idiot. And the Senate didn't like this. They didn't like that Sertorius was, you know, kind of a hard ass and, and, and being straightforward 
and his opinions on this. And, well, Cinna dies, of course, and he's killed by his own mutinous soldiers right before Sulla crosses back into Rome. And rather than, you know, electing Sertorius to lead the armies, as maybe they should have, they elect another guy that was in Cinna's uh, a retinue who was a, who was a, you know, a, a good speaker, but not much of a general. They pass Sertorius over and they make him kind of pay, play second fiddle to Scipio, right? Another pampered aristocrat who has a big name and very little in the way of experience. And the guy who was leading the other armies, Norbanus, well, he kind of, you know, he, he loiters around and he allows Sulla to get the drop on him because Sulla is another fast, intelligent, and decisive commander. And after Sulla defeats Norbanus and sends him running to Capua, right, and besieges him there, well, he sends those emissaries to Scipio, inviting Scipio to a parley. And Scipio, he starts to agree. But Sertorius, he opposes this vehemently. And he says, don't be a fool. There's absolutely no way Sulla wants to negotiate with you. He's just using this as an opportunity to turn your soldiers against you, right? Because there's already been defections. Because people don't want to fight Sulla's veteran army. And there's a lot of support for Sulla, right? There's a lot of senators and and, and a lot of people who are sympathetic to the Optimate faction, well, they're all joining up with Sulla. Right? Armies are being raised all over Rome. And Sertorius tells him that, you know, don't forget Fimbria. Don't forget what happened to Fimbria. Sulla has a way of bewitching people, right? He's going to come and take your legions. Well, Scipio just, he doesn't want to listen to this country bumpkin, Sertorius. You know, this ruffian, he's not going to listen to this guy. He tells him, you know, why don't you just go on? Sertorius, why don't you get out of here? Just, you know, go go check up on, on what's going on somewhere else. And he sends Sertorius with some men, you know, away from camp. Probably to keep him from, you know, messing up the negotiations with Sulla. Well, Sertorius, he leads an attack on another town and he messes up the negotiations because he knows... That Sulla's not going to do anything but use his time to manipulate Scipio. And of course, well, he was 100% right. And this, this must have greatly angered him. Okay? Because he's already, at this point, been frustrated several times by the Senate. And he's coming to a head with the regime that has grown up in, in, after the death of Senna, he, he's coming to a true breaking point with them. Because when he comes back, he runs for a consul, right? And it is undoubt, you know, I, I have no doubt in my mind that what he wanted was to be given command of the army so he could prosecute the war against Sulla the way that he thought it should be prosecuted. But the Senate in their blindness decide to pass over Sertorius 
in favor of the young Gaius Marius Jr. And rather than listen to what Sertorius has to say or consider him the more experienced and battle-hardened veteran, they elect this young Gaius Marius because he's got the power of the name. And he starts to see the way that things in Rome are going to be. Right? It's your popularity, it's your name, and, and it's your nobility and your bloodline that matters to these people. Gaius Marius Jr. at this point, he's, he's like 25, 26 years old. Never held a serious command in his life. And, you know, most of these pampered senators had never held a serious command either. And so when this happens, Sertorius kind of stands up and he just lets fly with his thoughts. He basically tells the Senate that they're a bunch of fools. And if they think that, you know, they're going to be able to stand against Sulla with what they have, well, you know, they're in for a seriously rude awakening. And the Senate, well, they don't like that. So they decide to send Sertorius to be the, you know, governor of, uh, of Hispania. And Sertorius, you know, I can just imagine him, you know, popping him the finger on the way out the door. Like, fine, you fools. Do what you will. And it seems at this point that he's probably written off the people in the Senate in Rome. And he decides to take his small legion they give him, they give him like a single legion into Spain so that he can create a, a sort of stronghold for the war against Sulla because he knows that, you know, he's probably going to have friends and allies that are going to need to flee somewhere because nobody in Rome is going to be able to stand against Sulla. So it'll be up to him to create something of a fortress against the, you know, the, the popular optimate conqueror. And so Sertorius takes his legion and he marches for Spain. Now, I just want to take a moment and talk about possibilities. Right? If you've been listening, then you know that I'm an author. Right? I'm an, in fact, I'm a manipulative fantasy author. So um, I'm all about going down, you know, dark little roads of imagination. And sometimes I wonder about Sertorius, whether, you know, what might have happened had anyone in the Marian Sinan regime listened to him, right? I imagine this, <laughs> you know, the, this dark reflection universe where the civil war was fought between Sulla and Sertorius. And I wonder how such a thing may have played out, right? If the, if the pampered fools on the Marian side of the conflict had taken a moment to open their minds 
to the opinion of someone like Sertorius. You know, somebody who, who they cheered during the social war. What might have been different? Because Sulla, if you remember, which I'm sure you do, was just maybe the last episode. <laughs> Sulla was, uh, you know, a really smart military commander. And he was a guy who was willing to gamble. And Sertorius, you know, especially as you're going to see in the next episode, Sertorius's military strengths probably would have been a really good match for a guy like Sulla. And that would have been interesting to see. And with Sertorius's story, at least the first part of his story, I feel like part of his tale is that journey to being recognized for your efforts, right? Sertorius could be, you know, better than everybody else in the Senate. But because he was this country boy, you know, from the Sabine area, raised by a single mom, you know, clawed himself up out of the dirt, so to speak. Well, there just wasn't much respect for that sort of thing amongst the pampered nobles of the Roman Senate. And much to their detriment. I mean, you see when when uh, <laughs> Senna, when he invites Marius to come and, and treat with them, Sertorius knows that Marius is just going to kind of take over. And he can kind of see already that he's going effing crazy. Right? And if you remember the episode on Marius, you know that at that point in his life, he had let's say, already surrendered to his, to his demons, as, as I guess one way to put it. And maybe, and maybe Marius was always a vengeful, petty sort of guy. A lot of these, you know, a lot of these nobles are, especially someone who had climbed to the top of Roman society before. And, and the Senate, in their blindness... You know, they, they tried to download a little bit of that Gaius Marius energy toward the end of the Civil War with Sulla, and they elect Gaius Marius Jr., a guy who's, you know, never led a serious campaign, whose actions in the war itself, if you remember, were effing disastrous. And Sertorius, well, they're going to send him packing to Spain. And this is a fateful decision. It might be the fateful decision that, you know, well, I hate to use the word fate again, but that had sealed their doom, right? Because without competent commanders and, you know, experienced military people, well, Sulla, he just rolled over the Marian regime. I mean, Sulla had you know, himself. And he had Pompey, right? Somebody who we're going to spend a little time on as well. And he had Crassus, right? Sulla, <laughs> Sulla pretty much had like a, a rock star crew. And he had Metellus Pius. And Metellus Pius was, you know, he wasn't the greatest. But he was better than, say, a Norbanus or a Carbo. Both of those men were kind of, they were great rhetoricians and they were, you know, good at convincing people to vote for them not so good in the field 
And Sertorius, you know, I, I wonder at how much, let's say, resistance Sertorius might have built up in the Senate. Because according to Cicero, he was a good orator. Right? So it should have been within his skill set to convince these senators that they're making a big fucking mistake. And he did try. If you remember, once the Senate elected Gaius Marius Jr. Every time I say Gaius Marius Jr., it, it makes me think of that old cartoon, James Bond Jr. Those of you who, you know, grew up in the uh, 90s might, might remember that. Bond, James Bond Jr. That's what I think when I say Gaius Marius Jr., probably why a lot of historians use the term the younger. They'll say Gaius Marius the younger because it sounds more distinguished, right? Well, how distinguished is it when you, when you have to, you know, climb a rope being let down to you by some townsfolk before you can be killed by Sola's army? Well, Gaius Marius Jr., he didn't get very far. But Sertorius, having been, you know, shipped off to Spain by the Senate. Well, he's going to fight longer than anyone in the Civil War. And in fact, long after the Romans kind of consider the Civil War to be over, right, when when Saul is just kind of, quote-unquote, putting down rebellions in Spain, well, you know, he's fighting Sertorius. That's who he's fighting. And Sertorius not only is able to fight the Romans and beat the Romans in Spain, well, he's going to take it to him pretty hard. And it's going to take a serious act of treachery to put an end to him. And making himself a thorn in the side of the nobles in Rome, well, That's a very dangerous exercise, if you remember. And at this point, the lines have already been drawn, right? War is already declared. And in fact, Sola's going to have a fight, you know, just to get into Spain. And we're going to talk about that on the next episode. Thanks for coming with me today on this uh, little journey through the first part of Sertorius's political life. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the, the wars that he fought in Spain, the stronghold he created there against the Sullen regime, and even a few interesting stories like the time he dug up the skeleton of a giant. It's going to be a wild ride. I know you're going to love it. And secondly, I need to apologize for the uh, the last two weeks. I've taken a little vacation. And by a vacation, I mean I've been working on other projects pretty extensively. So, in the future of this podcast, you know, this is something that I kind of do in, uh, I guess you could say, in my free time. And I'm going to start to try to put out an episode, one episode every week 
from this point forward because I really enjoy doing this and I hope you enjoy listening to it as well. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please like, follow, subscribe, do all the wonderful things. You can find us on YouTube now. You can find us on Facebook. Just look up Courage and Conflict. Like the page. I'll send you updates every now and then. You can join a mailing list now for the Courage and Conflict podcast. And that would be at dwhawkins.com forward slash legion. So come join the legion. You can get lots of behind the scenes goodies and get notified every time an episode comes out. Maybe even get to participate in things like polls that decide uh, what area of history that I'm going to talk about next. We'll see. I hope you love it. Much love back at you. And I'll see you guys next time when we talk about the war that Sertorius fought against the Sullen regime on courage and conflict. <laughs>